Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hello, JS Party. Welcome back. I'm here. I'm your host this week, K-Ball. And I am so excited today because we have a special guest uh, joining us for today's episode. We have Ujwal Sharma, uh, aka Rizokuken, who is one of the Node Core collaborators. Ujwal, how are you doing? Hey, Kevin. Hey, Nick. How are you guys doing? I've been doing great. Uh, so great to see you, Kevin, again. And great to meet you. And hi, everyone. Awesome. And as you hear from Ujwal, also joining us is our favorite panelist, Nick Nisi. Hello. I shouldn't say favorite. All the panelists are my favorites. I love all the people I get to talk to on here. So it's good. So today's topic is we will be talking about getting involved in open source. And this conversation came out of an in-person conversation I was having with Ujwal at NodeConf Columbia. Talked about how this is actually a really common question people have. So hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those questions today. But before we dive into that, I actually, I'm going to scratch my own itch a little bit and ask Ushwal the origin of his online moniker. Uh, longtime listeners know this is something I'm fascinated by, the way that the names that we call ourselves influence our behavior. So Ushwal, what's the story behind uh, Riso Kukin? Actually, I guess you'd be surprised. Yeah, I remember there's been a lot of places I've been like asked because it's so fascinating and people are like, okay, is this anime? But no, I mean, like, if you know, uh, there's quite a bunch of people we have in India and uh, there's quite a few people I share my name with. So this was like something that I've been frustrated with when I was growing up. And I decided to pick something that was random, that was never taken. And that's that's pretty much how it started. I was like, just garble some text until I found something that sounded cool to me, like to the 14-year-old me. And voila, I, I found it on GitHub and Twitter and everywhere. So like, that's the best part about having a absolutely random nickname. Uh, if you see Rizakook in anywhere, that's going to be me. That's pretty good. Yeah, K-Ball, I've got to have a couple different varieties. Even though I've never heard somebody else who, who calls themselves K-Ball in person, online it's not that uncommon. So do you go by Rizokuken in person at all or just online? Especially helps when people can't pronounce it better than my original name. And also like people that I knew purely out of community. So, I mean, it wouldn't be outlandish in note circles, for example, to call me Rizokuken because these people have worked with Rizokuken, not with you all. But yeah, I, I could use those interchangeably. Awesome. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit to our actual topic. Thank you for indulging me. So let's talk about our stories of how we got involved with open source. So before we start giving advice, let's just start from history. So uh, maybe Ujwal, can you kick us off? How did you get involved with open source? Sure, uh, thanks. This is uh, something that I've been trying to speak about. This is something that I've been asked heavily is that it's, it's really interesting. So open source, 
personally has been really fascinating to me personally as since I was younger because open source software has been like one of the biggest source of you know education for me right that's some of the biggest pieces of software available in the on the internet right now are open sourced and you could just read the source code of Node.js, for example. That's so exciting. But also, like, especially being a student from somewhere so far away from San Francisco, it's literally 12 hours of time difference. I realized at some point as a student that it was easier for me to get work on big open source project as opposed to, like, for example, getting a big internship, right? But it doesn't really matter if, if I could, like, prove my work to working on different stuff on Node.js, it could be equivalent to working on some big corporate project, for example. And yeah, so so the way I put it, it sounds very selfish, <laughs> me starting out with open source software, but this, like, we, we have this saying, right? So came for the code, stayed for the community, is that I've, I've received, over the years, I've received so much love, so much appreciation, and so many, I've met so many amazing people like yourselves, on in conferences in in open source software projects that you know it it has grown on me and i don't think that's like as a not just like as a factor of my career but like as a factor of my life that's going to change anytime soon so but like talking about how things worked out i'd been working on and off of open source projects when i was getting into university and immediately when i got into university i got to somebody told me about this amazing project that Google runs called Google Summer of Code. And it's a project that is intended to get students into open source. And I was like, why not? So in order to get deeper into open source, I started working at local communities, at communities inside my university, and then moved on to other communities outside. I mean, like there was, at that time, I was writing a lot of Ruby on Rails, for example, and there was not a lot of people who were writing Ruby on Rails open source because it's inherently application development, right? So I eventually found out an amazing community, huge shout out to Public Lab, by the way, some of the friendliest people I've ever met doing open source. And they were so welcoming. So I, it was, you know, through programs like Google Summer of Code and, and Hacktoberfest, like really small things. And through the, the welcoming nature of the community, I got started and later on realized that I could, you know, I could actually get paid to work on this. I could actually be a Google Summer of Code project member, uh, be a student and, and work on that. So the first year in my freshman year in college, I it was my first year of involvement with Google Summer of Code. I worked with them on a Node.js project that really was a defining moment in my journey in open source. And then I moved on to, after that year, I was so impacted by that project that I wanted to give back to the community, right? So I decided to be a mentor for them and mentor three different students, then moved on to a project that was more up my, my current interest because I was working a lot on Node.js and JavaScript. So I started working on Node. A bunch of helpful people along the way kept leveling me up, including Tierney, which, who we met at NodeCon Columbia, one of the most amazing people I've met uh, overall. It got me started and gave me the enthusiasm while Anna was helping me a lot with the technical aspects of the project and it's just that's what the whole deal is about right i mean like just meeting new people and and learning from them all across the journey so like everything has blown up ever since i've met these amazing people i've i've been working on v8 and and tz39 things these days mostly and i also double up as a maintainer electron helping them with the upgrades working group so that's it for me. Uh, I'd love to hear about your stories. Yeah, you have a way cooler story than I do. <laughs> Same. Yeah, so I, I guess I'll go next. So actually, my first exposure to open source was a little negative, honestly. Uh, and it was, it was a long time ago. My first job out of college, I was working at a company that was doing high-speed interconnect devices. And I was not directly working on this code, but one of the things that we needed to do was get drivers into the Linux kernel and dealing with getting code into Linux. And that was, back then, that was pre-Git. So that was, you know, it was, we were using originally Bitbucket and then Mercurial, and maybe that was right around when the transition to Git was starting to happen. I don't know, it was a long time ago. And 
I wasn't directly working on it, but I just know that the person who was in charge of interfacing with Linux or with the Linux folks was constantly frustrated and tearing his hair out and just like not happy. And so that was kind of like, okay, is that what open source is about? Like, I'm not sure I want to want to touch that. A few years later, got into more direct web stuff. I was using Ruby on Rails, kind of went down that road, was building mostly applications. And at some point realized, hey, when I'm using one of these open source libraries tied into this, if something's not working right, I can actually not just complain about it, I can contribute a fix. So some of my first touches into open source in a positive way were, I think, small libraries on the Ruby side and, and a little bit in JavaScript where I wasn't actually doing anything big. I was like, oh, I have an itch. I'm trying to use it in this way. It's not working. I'm going to file an issue, but then I'm also at the same time going to submit a pull request that addresses that issue. And that's something that to this day, I'm involved in, in ways like that, where like if I'm using something that or something's broken, if I have time, which sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, I will not only file an issue about it, I will also try to put aside time to file a suggested fix. And generally, I'll say like, hey, I'm new to your project. I tried to follow your guidelines. I may have failed. I'm okay if you want to do this in a different way. I just want to make sure this issue is fixed. And if you want me to do it, tell me a different way to do it. I'll do it. Because um, it's, it's really about getting the result. Uh, the first time that I got really deeply involved in open source and probably my window into the open source community as an opportunity engine uh, was when I was working at Zurb, uh, which was four years ago I started there now. Crazy, it's been that long. And they Zurb were the, was the company behind Zurb Foundation, which if you were a fan of that project, you're probably sad right now because that project has more or less been abandoned. There's hope that it may come back. But um, anyway, they were the drivers of that. And at the time, they were sponsoring employees to work on it directly. And so I, was, I spent a bunch of time working on it. And then I led the project for about a year and change. Um, and that was really enlightening because suddenly I was actually working as a maintainer. I was interfacing with people all over. I was helping. I was teaching. I was you know, recording you know, video content, tutorials, all these other things. Um, I was managing, project managing, but also implementing and doing a lot of development. Um, and it was fascinating and fun. And I got to go to conferences associated with it. Like it was, it was this great window into, whoa, this can actually be something transformative for a career. And, you know, I got to work with and I made relationships with people all across the world. Um, you know, I'm still in close contact and friends with people in India, with people in England, with people slightly less close contact, but still in contact with people in France and, and other people through these relationships I made in open source. And so that was, that was eye-opening. Endgame, Zurb ran into financial problems, laid off a third of the company, including me, no longer is investing in the product or the open source project largely because they couldn't afford to. And it's been a long struggle to try to get it pulled out so that the community could actually support it well. Um, and we could go off on a tangent for a while talking about corporate started open source projects and how to pull them out of the corporation in a way that's sustainable. Cause you know, I sort of started that process before I got there. There wasn't even really a core team that was outside of the company. And by the time I left, there was, but then the fact that even when you cut the sponsorship, the fact there was a core team wasn't enough because there were still so many things hooked into that company. So there is some, still some recent progress, some hope. Uh, that core team is still in contact. There's a lot of discussions. There has been some progress made for pulling it out, but it's been kind of in stasis ever since. And now my open source involvement is back since I'm doing my own consulting. I'm not paid to work on open source anymore. It's when I have time. You know, it's like, and most of it is, I was doing this thing and I ran into an issue and I'm going to fix it because I can. Occasionally curiosity driven. Uh, you know, I, I got a commit into ViewCore. Uh, which was pretty cool because that was, I was just trying to learn how Vue worked. Um, I got a couple commits into Node Core because I went to NodeConf Columbia and Node does an amazing, you know, coding exercise with people. Uh, I'm working in open source much less and much more in the community side with JS Party and and writing and trying to do that sort of thing. But yeah, that's kind of my long and meandering story of tiptoes in, whole hog in, and now I'm back to tiptoes and doing little bits. Um, and it would be cool to get paid to work on open source again. I'd like that. How about you, Nick? Yeah. So mine's, my story is a little bit different than both of yours. It starts off with a lot of imposter syndrome, uh, as these stories typically do. Uh, my first job out of college, I was doing a lot of Java work. Uh, didn't really like it all that much. And so I kind of 
gravitated towards the front end and I got introduced to first prototype and scriptaculous and I started doing some some stuff on the job for using that and it was really cool and then I discovered jQuery and I was just blown away and I started like really getting into that and like you know following John Resig and just deep diving into jQuery a lot really really enjoying it uh, and I wanted to contribute but I never felt like I was good enough or that I'd be able to contribute anything and I never did but I uh, left that company and joined another company where we were doing a lot more with open source with Ruby and they were using Dojo on the front end. And when they did a big seed round, they wanted everyone who was remote, uh, including me to relocate. And I didn't really want to. So I started thinking about something else I could do. And uh, that's when I reached out to my current employer um, because we had been using some of their open source software, including Dojo and, and Dgrid, which was a next generation for the time grid widget for dojo and it was really cool and i really liked it and i had submitted one bug report to it that was actually a valid bug so i was really excited about that and i reached out to them based on just having used their open source a lot and uh, ended up joining there and uh so i've been there it's site pen for about six years now and really enjoy it uh where i get to typically spend uh, a day a week contributing to open source, sometimes more, sometimes less, but on average about a day a week uh, where I'm, I'm actually on the job contributing to Dojo or other projects like I've contributed to Code Sandbox and TypeDoc and um, intern testing framework and, and a couple of others. But uh, so now, now that's what I do. But I'd say that the interest that I had getting into it came from the community that I saw around jQuery and then attending meetups locally and just talking to other people about what they're excited in. And I knew some people who were contributing to different things and just, you know, wanting to emulate them and be cool. Like, like these people that went to the meetups. And so that's, that's kind of how I got started into it. Nice. And then I think an interesting way to sort of look at this or talk about this for each of our stories is to talk a little bit about how open source you know, has impacted our careers and our career growth because i think that's that's one of the big topics around oh should i open source should i not in some ways it's giving away free labor but in other ways it can really amplify and change your your career trajectory i want to hear from both of you but just for me i think that was when i started really being able to go out and speak at conferences and go to you know not just go to conferences as an attendee but actually become a speaker um, it gave me credibility for writing for you know promoting my own material, um, I'd say through a meandering way is how I ended up on JS Party. You know, is I was at a conference speaking about foundation and I met Adam uh, from the changelog. And then like a year and a half later or two years later, he was like, hey, we're doing this thing around JS Party. Would you be interested? So like kind of really for me, I don't know that it's changed any of my programming job opportunities, but it has absolutely shifted my ability to go out to conferences and speak and be sort of a public figure in the tech world from nothing to, I wouldn't say I'm a celebrity, but I'm, you know, I can actually go to conferences and speak now and I'm on JS party. So it's, you know, nothing to zero to one, right? May not, maybe not uh, where you might want to get to, but got me started. I completely agree. I mean, like, these are the kind of tropes that we hear a lot, especially on Twitter, you'd see somebody be like, oh, I'm, I'm getting burnt out trying to work on open source apart from my day job. And I'm just like, maybe open source would not work for you. Maybe you wouldn't like doing it or, or for a variety of other reasons. And also, I mean, I agree that sometimes, you know, some certain projects certain work on open source could be free labor, essentially. But like, that's quite the opposite that has worked out for me, I guess. Like, I, I think it's more about you know, which kind of communities you, you, you work in and in which kind of projects you invest your time and effort into. I mean, like, for example, taking the example of Node for, for once, I mean, again, it's an open source project, uh, which is run by volunteers, but the Node.js Foundation, I'd say, has done a tremendously amazing job of trying to make sure that they do the best in their power, essentially, to help out people. I mean, I've, I've been directly affected by a, quite a few of those. For example, my first exposure to speaking and conferences was when Node.js Foundation was, was pretty much like, hey, do you want to come to Berlin? And I was like, sure. And, and that was the first time when I went out of my city and, and met amazing people at a conference. And essentially, that would later pivot into me being like, huh, maybe I could 
try to speak. I don't know. Uh, these people seem amazing. So yeah, my, I'd probably be a little biased personally, but the impact that has been created by open source software, by, by community work in my personal career has been super inspiring me personally. And, and it's it's kind of weird. I mean, I kind of went all in, especially with, with a lot of these things, but I mean, it, it has worked out quite well for me. There's also projects like V8 and, and Electron who, who care a lot about the people who work on these projects. And, you know, the communities are so wonderful that I literally, there's been a lot of phases where I've not been paid to work on open source projects. That's usually been the norm, but I'd still never stop working. It's just, I've reached a point where I don't even care about the code anymore. I'm just there for the people. Well, I feel like your story is kind of amazing, right? Because you said, if I'm not mistaken, you got started basically as you entered college or university. And if, if I'm not mistaken, you have not exited university yet and you're already speaking around the world and uh, you're talking with companies in all sorts of countries about maybe working with them and things like that. Like That's incredible. I think when I graduated college, I had zero contact in industry. <laughs> Yeah, it is super crazy. I, As I said, I still cannot thank these people, thank these events enough for what they've enabled me to do, essentially. And as I said, like somebody might call it free labor, but, you know, working extensively on open source project, you know, going all in essentially has, you know, I mean, like in a month or so, I'd be like everybody else. I'd be a senior year student at university. But the difference is that I've done enough work in the open at this point that people don't ask me about my technical work anymore which is which is kind of cool like i really like the fact that i'm already deep into the ecosystem i already know amazing people and open source is pretty much the only thing i have to thank for that how about you nick how is open source i mean you mentioned you got a job basically through open source connections or interest in open source yeah anything else that has has really impacted for you uh well i've pretty much been at the same company uh since so uh, Career-wise, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it, and I I get to work on open source quite often, uh, so that's great. I also get to help people with open source, so I've done a lot of you know fixing bugs and other projects, or being able to to point people to specific pieces of source code. I, I guess it, it really has helped me overcome imposter syndrome a little bit, specifically with being able to jump into a code base that I am unfamiliar with and kind of try and quickly come up to speed on what's going on in there or try and quickly find, you know, something that I can work on or something that I can do. Uh, and I think that that was one thing that I really struggled with in the beginning was, you know, that there's this project, what I want to help, what can I do? And it's, it's really about just finding a way to contribute. And that can be a doc fix or adding tests or something simpler than that. But really, yeah, has it impacted my career growth? Beyond confidence, I'd say that is yet to be seen. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Datadog. Get a user's eye view of your front-end services with Datadog Synthetics. Automatically test your application endpoints with simulated traffic from global locations, allowing your teams and yourself to proactively identify and improve issues before they affect your users. Plus, you can build multi-step browser tests by simply interacting with your application. Datadog will record your actions and automatically execute the tests, intelligently adapting to changes in your UI along the way. Build your first test today with a free trial of Datadog Synthetics and get a free t-shirt. Yes, the awesome Datadog t-shirt you've seen out there. Head to datadog.com slash dsparty to start your free trial. Again, datadog.com slash dsparty. Welcome back. Here we're going to talk about different ways to get started in open source. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important to talk about is that this doesn't only mean code. There's a lot of different ways that you can get involved with open source. Um, I've got kind of a list that I've gotten in my head, but actually, since uh, Ujwal, you're, you're often answering this question for folks, why don't you take a stab at it? How would you recommend folks get involved with open source? Yeah, this is something that has been that I've been asked personally quite a bit, and I guess a little shout out. Uh, you just talked about the Node 
JS Code and Learn. And Node.js has been like trying to do a lot of little projects to help people get into the community. And one of the projects that I've been working on these days is called the Mentorship Project. So there's just 10 mentors from across different areas in Node Core, me being one of them. And I've been mentoring an amazing, quite talented individual to work on Node.js, as are the rest of my colleagues. Now, I've been dealing with this very recently, but I guess like one of the big things to overcome is uh, the stigma and, and as Nick pointed out, the uh, imposter syndrome that a lot of us might have when working with open source. I mean, for example, I've, I've heard all sort of stuff like, oh, it's just documentation fix. And for example, like just picking this up, I found documentation fixes to be, in fact, one of some of the most difficult fixes in Node.js. I could tweak values all day. I could not write good documentation starting out. I'm, I'm still barely good at it. And that's the thing. So, I mean, if you go to projects like Ember has set up an amazing website. I was just talking to one of the core team members from Ember about it and uh, Chris Manson. and. So Ember has this website where you could essentially see all the different areas you could get involved at. There's initiatives like we've been talking about help wanted, good first issues, and first timers only, which you could, you know, use to your advantage, essentially. But, you know, apart from that, I mean, that, that usually covers the code part of the, you know, spectrum and a little about documentation maybe, but it's really important to look at the community work that is going on around a project at any given time. And like, as I see, it's sometimes really hard for people to understand how that could be useful. It's hard for people, it's hard for us personally to make people understand how they're creating impact, especially because there's no reliable metrics to judge that, right? I mean, if you're closing stale issues and triaging bug fixes and helping us clean up the mess that we make on GitHub. There's no metric to, to judge you on that and say, thank you, you made XYZ comments. So it's hard, but it's really invaluable. And the people who do it, I mean, I know I appreciate them a lot and, and pretty much everybody appreciates them. So there's two sides of this. So you don't have to be a hotshot coder to you know, write code that runs Electron. Honestly, for example, Electron, I mean, that's probably one of the more <laughs> more frightening things I've been through. I was like, oh, I work on Electron and Slack is going through an IPO. Is it stable enough? But, you know, at the same time, if you don't feel like getting involved in code, that's perfectly fine. There's people who, who run, for example, Node School chapters, local chapters for Node School, and that's such an important task. There's, there's Vuvixens chapters across all major cities at this point, I think. There's Angular meetups and whatnot. So I think that's one of the good ways to get involved into these communities. And I mean, like, you know, Tierney being an ex amazing example, he started out with inclusivity and outreach on Node.js and ended up being the chairperson of the community committee. He still works extensively for the community committee. And the kind of impact that he has created in other people's lives, even if you discount every single line of code he's written, is astonishingly high. I mean, for me personally, at least, it's been amazing to interact with him, for example. So yes, get involved in whatever you feel like. And there's absolutely none of these uh, areas are any better than the others. Do you think that we could run Node.js without the community support? Absolutely not. And that's, I guess, something that I want to shove into people's faces. I want to go up like, I don't know, Big Ben and sh sh shout it off across the roofs is that no documentation is important uh community work is important and we need you more than ever yeah one of the things i saw the Vue.js project do that i thought was really cool is that they have core team members whose focus is the docs and they're calling that that is a core team member whose focus is on the docs and in fact uh at a view conf that i went to a year and a half or two years ago, you know, they were calling out that like one of the big drivers for why Vue.js has been so well adopted is because Chris Fritz did an amazing job on the documentation and that that was like one of the biggest things that they saw as a, a reason underlying the phenomenal growth. If you're a software developer, you might think, okay, but 
that's not my skills. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. But then you feel too intimidated to get into the code. Like writing docs is actually also a phenomenal way to learn the code base. So if you feel imposter syndrome around, oh, I don't know if I can touch this code base, you can still be creating incredible value on the documentation as you learn the code base. Because if you go in and something's not clear, you may have to dig deep into the code to understand how to describe that properly. Similarly, things like tests. Like I, So I went to the Node.js Code and Learn that you hosted in uh, Columbia. It was the first one of those events I'd been to. And almost all of the issues were around, we're going to increase code coverage. right? We, we have code coverage tool and we have something where it's like, okay, this line is not covered. And you think, that's trivial. Why is that? Like, how helpful is that? Especially a lot of them were like these little corner case branches. But solving those issues was a great entree into the code because you had to go down and understand a little bit about how is this actually working and how are all these pieces wired together and you have to build the project and you have to go through. And so like these tiny, tiny seeming things actually become wonderful onboarding ramps into the code base and they're helpful for the project. So yeah, I, I feel like there is no contribution that is too small because part of the point is it's teaching you about how that project works. Um, and it is helpful to the community and it is helpful, you know, and it can, you know, the fact that the docs are amazing is a big driver. And I see in the chat, you know, that Ember has a whole team around learning like that. That's another thing learning like, you know, I'm looking at the view site because once again, view is the, the framework that I've been sort of the most uh, connected to recently. And like they have on their core team page, they have callouts to community partners that include a bunch of people who just do education stuff, who are focused on, and it can be some of it's free, some of it's paid, but like communication is a huge deal. And it's something that a lot of times the core developers of a project may not be very good at. And so if you're good at that and you can go and help with that, if you can help teach, if you can help communicate, if you can help write documentation, those are not only good entrees into the code base, but they're incredibly valuable contributions to those projects and to that community. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely easy to make a computer understand code, but it's uh, a completely different feat to make humans understand that code. And that's where documentation really shines. So when we look at getting started, um, maybe let's talk about like, how would you pick a project, right? So it's, it's easy to say, okay, now I, I'm excited. I feel like, okay, I've got a low barrier. I can contribute to docs. I contribute to code. But how do you decide where, where to contribute? What project? What community? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question in that it's one of the most important questions that you ask yourself. And people kind of really underestimate how important community fit is, right? I mean, you could start working at any project as, for example, we talked about Linux kernel, which you didn't find a good fit for yourself. But there's a whole lot of really talented, really amazing individuals who work on the Linux kernel project, and they find that a good fit for themselves. So I think it's really important to understand what your fit is. I mean, like, look at these projects, like Node.js has been around for over 10 years now, uh, Election for a little bit less, and V8 for more than that. But Yes, I mean, like, if you look at the initial phases of these projects, uh, a lot of the people who got involved early on were people who were really interested in the technology. A lot of people were really interested, like, who got early on involved into Node.js were interested in streaming and, and event-based APIs, you know, and, and runtimes. And, and people who got involved in V8 were interested in parsers and optimization. I'd say that I'd, I'd actually go on a lag and, and say that that's not, really the case anymore. I look at myself, I look at some of the other younger contributors who have only been involved for the last year or so, uh, or maybe just a little bit more. And I, I see people who essentially join the community. Like for me, for example, I've learned everything about the Node.js project. I've learned C++ essentially. While working on the project, I found amazing people on Twitter doing amazing things. And I was like, Huh, I really like these people and maybe I could somehow find out a way to work on them and, and you know, some start writing tests and, and then start writing JS code and then start writing C++ code. So I think it's less about like as a project goes on and, and grows and gets more mature and you develop your community. So it's more about community than the code at some point. Because I think along those lines, that's how I try to explain myself. The, the amazing 
press coverage and the amazing community. I ascribe to the amazing Rust community what the success they're having these days is that they spend a lot of time building an amazing community and they're they're starting to read the benefits of that. So unless you have a welcoming community, unless you have some where the, where people can find a good fit for themselves, where people can feel at home, you know, technical superiority, as some might say, is a far-fetched goal because you will miss out on a bunch of amazing people. If you look at the direction projects like the Linux kernel is moving to, you'd see that they're starting to realize that they need to work more inclusivity and they need to work more on how to get people to feel more comfortable working on the project, right? I think there were some really key points in that. So one, yeah, is making sure that you are actually interested in what that project is doing. I think, you know, you sort of said, oh, that's super important. Early on, they're interested. I think that's pretty important as you go. You know, if you don't want to be a user of this project, you will not be a great contributor for it because you won't have in your mind, like, what are the use cases? What are you trying to solve? And you probably won't maintain interest. The community is so huge. And I think there's some some good tells out there to try to identify what's going to be a good community to join. Um, Chris in the chat uh, mentioned read the code of conduct when choosing. And if there is none, avoid. I think that is actually a really good piece of advice because not necessarily because every code of conduct is going to be perfect, but rather the fact that they have a code of conduct means that they actually care about how people interact and they have thought about it and they're not just assuming that things are going to work their way out, which tends to lend itself to bad actors. I think further than that, you can often get a sense for how people interact by looking at existing pull requests. You know, if somebody who's not a core contributor puts a pull request up, do they get positive response? Do they get constructive feedback? Do they get taken down in an extremely negative way? You know, are pull requests or end issues by people outside of the core project merged slash addressed or are they ignored? You know, there are there are a lot of tells that you can look for to see like, is this a community that is welcoming to others? And I think that's a really important thing if you're joining a community. You want a community that is friendly. You want a community that is helpful to newcomers that's not going to make you feel bad. Um, and you want a community that's open to others coming in and starting to contribute. You know, if if all of the if the only PRs being merged are those by the core team, this might not be a good project to join as a new contributor. Another place you can check, uh, a lot of projects have set up their own communities on Slack or Discord or Spectrum. So there's lots of different places that you can check and you can go look at the history of that chat and kind of get an idea of what the community is like and also jump in and ask for you know help getting started. And that, that's a good place to get uh, real-time asynchronous feedback with contributors and other enthusiasts of the project. I will say if you're in the JavaScript world and if you're listening to this, you're probably in the JavaScript world. Some of the most welcoming projects I've seen out there are Node.js and Vue.js. They are both incredibly welcoming to the community. Um, it sounds like Ember is as well, but I have not directly been involved with that. Uh, but that's another one you could look at. Yeah, and uh, this Code and Learn that happened at Node.js Columbia, uh, Columbia, is that similar to the one that happened at Node.js Interactive in Vancouver, Cable? I did not attend that one, so I don't know. I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I'd say that the Node.js Code and Learns are, are coordinated events, and they happen more or less in the same way. I think like the final details uh, rest on the who are the final on-round people who are organizing it, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that the community at large is involved in that. It's like I could go on and, and physically help out a bunch of people, but without the support of the community, you know, sitting at their homes, merging PRs like crazy and, you know, running CI servers every once in a while, it'd be impossible. So it's more like a whole team effort, but we try to do those as much as possible. We try to do those. I've personally been trying to do those more and more in regions where like which have been traditionally underrepresented in Node.js core. So, for example, uh, I was really happy to organize the first ever Code and Learn in Russia a couple of months ago, which is crazy, right? Russia is an amazing community of programmers and a bunch of really amazing JavaScript developers. Why don't they have enough people working in Node core? Because maybe they're not getting enough attention. So now they are. And I'm planning to organize a second one soon. But yeah, I think Code and Learn is a really important 
tool to empower people to contribute to this code base. I mean, so uh, Nick, you talked about the imposter syndrome, and that's been something that I've been personally dealing with a lot, especially when I was initially working with the community, when I would constantly think that I'm not good enough to solve an issue. And not only that, that's actually like fairly better than thinking what I used to think in that, oh, I don't even need to ask them because I'm just a waste of their time. Now, Code and Learn goes the extra mile of saying, you're not a waste of their time anymore because they're literally at the same location. And it's literally a part of their job for the next couple of hours to help you. They're there to help you. And I think it bridges the gap asynchronous workflow that, that GitHub offers. I mean, it's great, but sometimes you've got to just sit down with a person and talk about a problem, which would give you a great insight into not only the code base itself, but into their problem-solving processes. I think it's one of the most powerful things that I've learned more than the code base itself is that how do certain core collaborators in Node or, or in V8, for example, approach certain problems and, and deal with them. So I, I personally think that it's a great initiative. It could be scaled up much more, of course, but uh, where it is, uh, as it is, I think uh, we've been trying our best to spread the love. Yeah, and I was really impressed by that uh, event. I didn't participate in it, uh, but just the uh, from what I heard, like the idea is that everyone would submit a pull request to to Node, and that can really help, like break the surface tension of getting into open source, which is which is really cool. But I like it's also fascinating being able to like manage that on the node side, you know, saying like, we have enough, we have an idea of enough pull requests that we can get everybody started and going. Uh, and they don't have to be huge ones, but they're, they're going to be significant to the people that are doing them, which is great because it's just going to help the project, but also going to help everyone involved just level up their game with, with node and just get, get into that project. And they may never make another commit again, but they, they may contribute more in the future. And that's huge. Yes, totally. I mean, like talking about people who would never contribute again, I, I personally think that's perfectly fine. As long as we help in any way whatsoever, you know, maybe we just help improve their confidence. Maybe we just help break the surface tension. Maybe we just help them just jump through that one hurdle that was blocking them for working on whatever they felt like. I think it's a worthwhile attempt. Also, you know, as I see, at some point, I guess the Node.js people realized that it was much more harder to set up the project than to actually make a commit that in most cases might be trivial. Like you just, it's a JavaScript project. You make a bunch of changes. That's what you do at a day job also. It's, on the other hand, it's probably rocket science at times to set up the project. And that's the deal. Uh, once you set up the project at your local computer, once you know how to make the commits, how to follow the commit guidelines, you know, how to trigger CI, how to wait for review. I think once you get to the administrative slash governance related hurdles, the code part or the documentation part itself is kind of simple. Yeah, it was super cool to be a part of. Um... I thought it was an awesome event and it was also neat sort of hanging out with some of the folks who ran it afterwards and being like, we had a hundred people, uh, as of like an hour or two after the event closed, they had 60 pull requests open and asked, I was like, okay, so how many of those folks go on to make more? And they said, well, you know, we had a hundred people, maybe 60 made a pull request today. And I don't know, three or five of those will go on to be regular contributors. I mean, three or five regular contributors to an open source project is a lot. I mean, maybe not at node scale, I don't know, but like most projects I'm familiar with until they get massive scale, like three or five is an appreciable percentage of the team. Yeah, totally. I mean, personally, my goal is always like I started off with the goal of one and I continue always with the goal of one. It's like as long as I can help one person, it's it's a successful event to me. As long as one person, they don't even necessarily have to start working on Node full time. As long as one person thinks that's open source is something that they could possibly work on as opposed to like feeling kind of dicey about it. I think that's that's a worthwhile shot.
This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Let us talk now about how to level up as an open source developer. You know, how do we go beyond good first issues and you know maybe code coverage pull requests like I was doing for Node.js and and become you know someone who's if not working on it full time, which for some people would be the dream. I would love to be paid to work on open source. I don't know if I'd go to full time, but I would love to get to do that as a part of my job again. But even just to a level of you're comfortable, you can contribute, you can you know, jump into a project and say, hey, I'm here to help. So let me throw that out uh, first again to Ujwal, since you know, you've been thinking about this and, and answering a lot of folks' questions on this. How do you level up? Hey, uh, thanks for the amazing question. This is, this is a really special question for me, actually, because not only have I been asked this extensively, this is something that I've personally struggled with a lot because, I mean, again, projects are great and, and some projects are more inclusive than the others, but, and, and then there's programs like first timers only and, and good first issue. And as I, as we talked about code and learn or, or even the mentorship program, but they, the deal with these programs is that they have a very specific environment. They have a very protective environment in which they want you to grow. But how do you level up from that, right? How do you level up from your first issue, the, the metaphoric first issue, which might, which might have as well have been like 16 issues, as it were for me, uh, to the second issue, which is like, you know, a completely different thing to pick up something all by yourself and, you know, enter completely uncharted territory, enter basically, it's like escaping the tutorial, essentially, right? So, I mean, what, what I think is one of the better ways is to get involved in a big ongoing, you know, project in a big ongoing initiative. So this helps a lot because this takes away the kind of like official mentorship that you had during your first uh, experience, maybe it was a code and learn, but at the same time, there's enough people working on the project that you don't need to be like full autodidact, right? So you can still like take inspiration from people. You can still, and one of the things that I do, I shamelessly copy people's PRs. <laughs> so what I personally did, for example, in Node.js was that I remembered I was writing a bunch of good first issues and somebody popped up, they were like, oh, we need to refactor all the tests. And I was like, that's a lot of things. Can you do them all by yourself? They were like, I'd love to split. And I essentially would go about, you know, asking them to do a file for me. And then I would follow their steps and going around that to do something that was like, you know, that was not planned. And, and towards the end, they were like, well, thank you. This is actually really useful for the project. And, you know, that, that gives you the kind of confidence that gives you the familiarity with the code base and everything that then you could be part of, I don't know, bigger initiatives. Then you could be part of more self-governed initiatives. Maybe you could start your own initiatives. So this is what I would usually do is that if there's a massive ongoing refactor, for example, those are really common, I would participate in that. If there's a massive rewrite of code, for example, if a project is being rewritten in TypeScript, it's a great good second issue because it's unplanned, it's uncharted territory, but at the same time, it's more or less certain what's expected of you, right? So that's the kind of middle ground that I think of myself is that it's unplanned, but then it's well-defined because the towards the end you'd be working on things on your own accord maybe they would not be well defined at all you'll be like oh let's add es module support to node.js which is crazy amount of work so yes for example i've been to quote an example from v8 uh, i've been working on adding async stack traces for example to certain functions now async stack traces have already been added for certain functions by you know the amazing and talented benedict maurer from v8 and 
what I could do is I could look at his work and take inspiration. I could take a look. I could check his notes, essentially. I could ask him what his approach was. So it was, while it's still a great thing to do, while it's still a completely new thing that we really appreciate, at the same time, it's not entirely new in the sense that it's known, it's well-defined what's expected. So that's my actual secret recipe that I just handed to you for good second issues. That's what I do when I try to like increase my my involvement in a certain project from from newbie to like more deeply involved. And I'd love to hear yours. I'd love to actually call out one of the things you said there. Um, so you talked about copying people's PRs, and I think it, at first blush that sounds. Like, how is that actually going to help me? But I think it, it ties into something really powerful. Um, I heard a, a phrase that I like, which is first you emulate, then you innovate. And you're know, taking work that someone has done. And this, this comes back a little bit to like, how do you learn anything? You know, you start with a copy and paste and then you tinker and you explore and you figure out how it works. And so, you know, saying here's somebody who's already done some work that is very similar to other work that needs to be done. Let me take their work and try to apply it in this new place. So then I, I start to learn about, you know, how does that thing that they did actually work? How does it interact with other pieces of the system? But you don't have to learn everything at once because they've already done most of the work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of my approach. As I said, like, I'm, I've been shameless about this, is that I think personally copying PRs, quote unquote, has worked perfectly for me in that, like, it gets me into the thought process of an individual. It's like, okay, here's what they did. And I could like break down their like months worth of work into small pieces and be like, okay, this is why they did this and this is why they did this. And it's been amazingly uh, helpful for me to understand the inner workings of certain systems, I would not lie. And that's mostly how I've been getting more and more involved with certain things these days that like first I try to imitate like the important part is not just imitation, but like post your imitation, I guess you need to analyze what happened and why certain things happened in certain ways. And then you could try make sense of it one chunk at a time. Maybe it would not make complete sense to you at the beginning, but sooner or later, uh, we're writing code, it's no magic. And sooner or later, I think all the gnarly details will reveal themselves to you. And at some point, you'd get comfortable enough to be like, huh, so that's happening. And I guess that's what essentially happened with Node with me also in that I would be like, really, really simple things like, oh, I need to add stuff to, I, I need to add a function to the FS module. Now, the, this person added a function to the net module and the file they changed is lib slash net.js. So guess where the FS module lives? And simple things like that would actually go on to form my framework of understanding of the code base because as Nick said, it's increasingly with like, especially with projects like Node, it's increasingly difficult to get into a project like Node. It's always increasing in size. It's crazy hard how big the source code is and you at some point you got to keep in mind there's 50 or so people who are getting paid full time to work on this project you cannot possibly understand everything in the code base in a go right so do not just give it time just go through certain things at your own pace so i think at this point the framework i have of how node works internally was created essentially brick by brick by imitating people and then you know essentially understanding what they did and i was like okay this is how this certain portion works now i know this i didn't want to change topics but i was just going to mention another way that you can get started with with open source is by creating a proposal like as an issue onto a project uh, that's a really good way to propose some changes and then you can be the one to implement them too or just provide feedback if you don't feel like you, you're technical enough. Uh, I've def definitely done that a couple of times uh, and it's really worked out well where I've gone in and, and thought about a problem that I had and, you know, a project was like an 80% solution to what I needed, but it didn't quite either do the things I wanted or give me the hooks into it that I needed to be able to make it do the things I wanted. And so uh, I've worked on writing proposals saying, this is a problem that I have. Is this something that you would be willing to support? And if so, if you can point me in the right direction, I'd be happy to start implementing it. 
And uh, I've gotten started in two open source projects through that route, and it's been very beneficial. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I resonate that with a lot, uh, you know, going to a project and being like, well, we got to do this, but the catch is that instead of doing it yourself, you got to teach me instead. And like in that direction, I think Node has an amazingly helpful label that you can use at the repository right now, which is mentors available. So, I mean, every once in a while, uh, somebody would find an issue that they could easily solve, but they would leave it out for somebody who would like to perform those tasks essentially under a mentor instead of maybe they don't have the confidence yet to do it by themselves. Maybe they, do, they lack some expertise to do it by themselves. So, yes, a lot of people, amazing people at Node would sometimes mentor people for specific issues. And I think that goes a long way in, in helping you know, impart your basically expertise about the project to another individual, I think. I like that a lot. One thing that I think you need to know yourself and know how you take uh, feedback and how you take setbacks and things like that. But if you are somebody who is comfortable with failing and comfortable with getting feedback, and especially if you've joined, if the, the project you've chosen has a supportive community, something that I have both used and seen used with great effect is essentially taking on something that is beyond your capabilities and saying, being very open about that and saying, hey, I'm going to try to do this. I am almost certainly going to do it wrong, whether it's because I don't understand the project well enough or because it's beyond my current overall technical skill or what have you. But I'm going to do my darndest and I want to lay the door open for every piece of feedback. So you know, and saying that explicitly you know, in the pull request, for example, and saying, hey, I'm new to this project. I know I did stuff wrong here. Tell me what I did wrong and how I can fix it. And if you have a supportive community, often you'll get back great stuff. And if that can feel, if, if you don't have a huge amount of confidence in yourself, that can feel negative, even if they're very supportive, right? It could be like, I didn't do it right. You know, I, I didn't. So if, if you are someone who's still working on building your confidence, don't take this approach. But if you feel pretty self-confident and you're good at dealing with feedback, like tackle something that is out of your comfort zone by a long way. One of the core contributors when I was working on Zurb Foundation started coming in. He had no idea. And he was just like tackling stuff. He's like, I want to be able to have this, so I'm going to try to do it. His first pull request got, I think the thread was up at 150 or 200 feedback and comments and iterations and like this massive train of things because he just like, he tried and he got a bunch of feedback and he tried again and he got a bunch of feedback and he tried again and he got a bunch of feedback and it went over and over and over. That pull request never got merged, but he learned so much from that that he then went on and started tackling other issues and, and eventually became one of the core team members. So like being unafraid, if you, know, if, if you can have that level of confidence in yourself to say, you know what, this is not going to succeed. I'm going to get a lot of negative feedback, but I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to try and I'm going to seek out that feedback. I'm going to seek out that guidance. Like that can be a very fast track to learning. Yeah, that really resonates with me also because that's essentially what has happened to me multiple times. I guess it's also about accountability and everything because so at some point I realized that I had also a, a profound imposter syndrome and I would essentially game my imposter syndrome by going to a person and being like, oh, did you know that I've been working at a couple of proposals at TZ39? And then they would be like, okay. And then I'd go back home and feel super stressed about it. So I'd just DM Daniel and be like, hey, please help me work on TZ39 proposals. And I think like one of the more important things to understand about this community is that like, I've personally at least, you know, received a lot of love, a lot of guidance, a lot of mentorship from this community. I think it's really important. One of the biggest, most important things, I guess, to to understand is to realize that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask, uh, keep asking as many questions as you can. It's okay to ask a question that you feel is a stupid question because there's no such thing as a stupid question. And for example, there's people like Benedict and, and all these amazing people at Google who work on V8 and I'd, I'd honestly be like, oh, they're so busy. Of course they can't like give me a minute of their time and then like somebody at V8 would spend the next like two hours trying to explain to me how parsers work. So uh, it's just crazy how much amount of help you can receive if you just ask for it. So that's something that should be kept in mind also. And I think it's, as you said, I mean, it's perfectly, depending on what kind of person you are and how comfortable you are with that, I think 
the point where you step out of your comfort zone is when you when you make the biggest quantum leaps. It's like it's crazy. I still think is you know my involvement with the V8 project essentially started with somebody at V8 asking me if I wanted to work on V8, and I just like hastily saying yes without thinking what it would entail. And then like spending the rest of the summer reading the Dragon Book, essentially, trying to figure out how that worked. So, I mean, uh, and, and as you said, it's, it's really important to understand that it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall flat on your face because we fail all the time. So if you fall short of where you, where you thought you'd be, at least you'd like, as they say, if you, if you aim for the sun, at least you'd hit the moon as opposed to like not even trying. So it's great to aim high. It's great to get out of your comfort zone. Of course, if you're the kind of person who enjoys that kind of stuff. Well, and one thing that I think is worth saying is like, if you're putting in the work, if you're trying, if you're you know trying to do PRs and you're trying to do stuff and you're, you're putting work into the project, people are going to be excited about helping you, right? Like, if you show up out of nowhere and you ask a bunch of questions and you're not doing any work, people may not do as much to help you. But if you're putting in the work day after day and somebody gives you feedback and then they, you come back and you've clearly incorporated their feedback, even if it's not perfect, like they'll keep working with you. A question that's sort of related to that, people will ask, like, how do you get a mentor? How do you get somebody to help you? Like, I've mentored a couple different developers over the last few years. And each one, it's a, because they're somebody that they are going places. and. I get excited to help somebody get someplace faster. I don't I couldn't care if you don't know where you're going, you're not trying to go anywhere, I'm not going to help you. Like, I mean, I'll help you a little bit, but I'm not going to keep investing. But if you come to me and ask me a question and I give you an answer and then you come back and show me how far that took you and you're going and you're going and you're going in this project, like I'm going to keep giving because that's exciting. You know, if you if you're you've been working on this project for a while and you see somebody coming in and they are going for it, you're going to want to help them. Like that's human nature i think is like we like to help people who are helping themselves so if you want to get in just go for it and if you fall flat on your face if you're going for it people are going to pick you up and help you keep going absolutely i think one of the other sentiments that play out in this space a lot is that for example as i'm telling you a lot of amazing uh, opportunities in my life have been created because essentially working on these open source projects and, and especially because of very certain individuals who helped me quite early on and at some point i realized that i had grown enough to like help out another individual right and i was like okay, maybe it's time for me to give back to the community. Maybe I'll do a bunch of talks. Maybe I'd mentor a person. The crazy part about community, though, is that it, no matter how much you give to it, it always gives back more. So I'd go to a conference and I'd be like, oh, it would be amazing to speak at this place about this subject because it would be good for them. But it always turns out to be better for me. Like it always is a win-win. So the best thing about open source is to realize that we we, especially in open source ecosystem, live in a world of positive sum games. There's no limited buy here. So we all benefit from helping out each other. There's a bunch of amazing places that you could contribute to and everybody would benefit from there. Like there's literally no person who's who's not benefiting from that. So you should create these opportunities. Talking about mentors also, as you said, I'd say that I've had hundreds of mentors across my life working on these projects without any of them knowing they were mentoring me. I don't know, start with like one Twitter DM. And before you know, they were like helping me out full on with like solving issues one after the other. And I think like being on both sides of the board at this point, fairly recently also, what I realize is that as long as you're making progress, as you said, the mentors don't care how slow you are. So if, uh, if you're moving, no matter how slow you are moving, you're doing great. And as it is said, like, especially when it comes to open source, you're already ahead of what like 85, 90% of other people if you just show up, because most people would never even show up. All right. I think that's probably, we're about at time. That's a good place to wrap. Any closing thoughts either of you want to leave us with? Uh, I guess I could just say that if, if you're, in, you're anybody who's trying to get into open source, if you're anybody who's trying to get, especially in the JavaScript ecosystem, you know, there's this crazy amount of people out there who are just waiting to help you. 
or maybe probably not literally waiting to help you, but they would be really glad to help you is what I mean. Personally, my DMs are always open. You can find me on Twitter. Or you can find me on email if you prefer that. And when I talk to people about getting them working on Node.js, uh, a common thing that I've been known to say is that 99% of the time, I would not know what to do. I would not know how to help you. But 100% of the times, I know somebody who could help you. So it's just that just reach out, reach out to me, reach out to any of these amazing people that I mentioned, reach out to pretty much anybody on the Node.js core team. I, I do not know of any person in the scene right now who would not be super glad to help you. It's just we're really glad if you could start working on the project. And well, we need you more than you think we need you. Awesome. All right. With that, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, Ujwal, for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you, Nick, for being my co-flyer, co-panelist on here yet again. It was good to, to hang out with you again because it's been a little while. Thank you to all of those out there live listening. You are what make this a party. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be a party without our live listeners, um, particularly going to call out Chris Manson and Isaac Carter. Thank you for joining us in the Slack channel. If you weren't able to Slack with us, but you were still listening live, props to you. You're amazing. You make this a JS party every week. And with that, we're going to wrap up. Catch you all later. This is K-Ball signing out. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We just an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.